That would have been annoying. Parshat Balak. Uh, you in America have a double portion this week, Chukat Balak. Uh, we have one. So that means that you're catching up to us this Shabbos. So this is the weekend of catching up, getting things done. That's good. Um, I figured the smartest thing then is to speak about Parshat Balak. Uh, because then we can share Torah that's time efficient and appropriate for everybody. Um, there is a fascinating idea that comes out of this week's Parsha. And, um, you know, just by way of a story, there are events, moments in your life where you feel alone. And I imagine that if you took a moment, you could easily come up with an experience like that in your life. You know, the first day of camp or school where you didn't know anybody or you went to a simcha and you didn't have any friends. Like everybody has a moment like that. And usually we think of the process of being alone as a numeric. You know, you're standing in a room, there's no one there. Sometimes you can be all alone, but you're not really alone. You feel at one with something much greater than yourself. You feel empowered, right? So they're not really alone, right? Rav Soloveitchik, um, when Rav Soloveitchik's wife was really ill, sort of the last period of time where her illness ultimately led to her passing, he writes in one of his articles that uh, he felt so alone. Because at the end of the day, as much as there are children and grandchildren, when someone has a protracted illness, there will come a time when you're left alone. Corona and everything going on is a good example of that. You know, as much as we... We're, we're three brothers, and my parents are in Yerushalayim, and they're 85 Kanainahara, they're going to be 86 in, uh, in, in December, and so they're at risk, and they've been pretty much home since the beginning of March. And we make sure that, you know, we visit them daily, every week. But the difference between the intensity with which we made sure that we were calling them and visiting them every moment in March is definitely different than how it is now in July. Um, so sometimes things wear down, and, and you're alone a little. But despite the fact that on a particular day they might be sitting alone, they don't feel alone at all, and I've talked to them about this. Sometimes, on the other hand, you can be in the middle of a crowd and feel totally alone. Um, you know, on occasion, I've had to be at cocktail parties in New York. And this is, a, this is an event where a group of people are brought together to suffer for a cause. There's just no other way to describe it, right? They, they, they have, like, waiters and waitresses walking. You have to dress up and put a rope around your neck, and you kind of stand in a room. There's nowhere to sit. Everybody's talking, so it's so noisy you can't hear yourself anywhere. Uh, you can't really. I don't know that. Please just stop. Somebody is. It's um, really a Somebody is needs to be muted. Hang on a second. I apologize. Okay. Um, and uh, you know, you you kind of feel intensely alone, and sometimes you look at people and you realize it's 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 it, it's heartbreaking. You meet people who come there in order to hoping to meet someone. And I, you know, I used to, when I would end up at one of these, after a while, I would look for someone who just looked like they felt alone. And I'd go talk to them. I'd figure, what a great mitzvah to find someone who's standing on their own, they look uncomfortable, and go talk to them. And you meet interesting people. And sometimes being alone is not about where you are. It's not about your state of mind. It's about the decisions you have to make. Uh, I can picture many moments like that. I'll just give you one example. We were... Uh, it's a longer story as usual, but I'll show you the short version. We were in Miluim on the reserves, and uh, 
it was actually, I had thought that it would be a very easy, right, I know we haven't had an army story in a while. I, I, I thought that it would be an easy experience because we were basically defending uh, an area in Gush Etzion, opposite uh, Bethlehem, Artas, El uh, Chader, Chirbet Aliyah, whatever, Arab villages. And my home was 10 minutes away. And uh, it was the beginning of the second intifada. And we got called because shots were being fired at the north of Efrat. Now, I live in Efrat. So this is easy. This is near home. I know the area. And I got out there, and there were two terrorists, and they were firing at the caravans on top of the Dagan. Today, Dagan is built up. My daughter and son-in-law actually live there with my grandkids. But back then, it was an empty hill with a few caravans. Uh, we couldn't get the people in the caravans to evacuate on principle. They felt that this is Eretz Israel and we shouldn't be leaving because of this, that you should be defending us, and we couldn't force them out. So we had to figure out what to do. Long story short, there were two terrorists. They were like, I don't know, 20 Arab children running around amongst them. They were sitting on the second floor in a balcony of a school um, in Khirbat Aliyah, right opposite Efrat. And there was nothing we could do, right? Uh, they were in an area that was technically known as Shetach A, right? Which after Oslo and the Peace Accords meant we weren't allowed to enter there under any circumstances. We were allowed to return fire, but not to enter which means that the normal thing that you would do, which would be like a tzert vachim, to shorten the distances until you could charge and do what you needed to do, you couldn't do. And you couldn't really shoot at them because there were kids running around. So we had to get a couple of snipers. It took 40 minutes for the snipers to arrive. By the time they arrived, um, I'll spare you the details of how difficult it was to find them and to get them, and the battalion frequency was loaded and whatever. And they finally show up. Um, they had a gun called a barat. A barat is a a gun that shoots an 05 caliber bullet. Uh, short version, the the range is, is about 2,000 yards. So to hit something five 600 yards away is a no-brainer for these guys. But you realize that if you give the order to shoot and they accidentally hit a child, you're going to start World War III. Remember, we didn't, this is the first week. We didn't know this was going to turn into a whole intifada for, for months. We thought, you know, it's an event. And uh, I was trying to get my battalion commander on the phone, on the radio, because I didn't really want to give the order, but I couldn't get him. And finally, you have no choice. And there's this moment where, you, where the weight of the world is sitting on your shoulders, and you realize that you're all alone. I remember, by the way, having a very similar experience in March, when the day before we were supposed to go to Poland, and the Ministry of Education canceled all of its trips to Poland because of the coronavirus. And I got a call from Scott, like, what should we do? And we were set to fly the next day. Never mind, the parents were calling, etc. So I had a couple of hours to, 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 to research that the data, were there any cases in Poland, was there any real danger, etc. And then you have to make a decision, and you can't win in a decision like that. Because if you get it wrong, you're going to pay a heavy price. You can't blame it on anybody, you can't put it on anybody. It might be safer to just say we're not going to go, but then you have 30 boys who are not going to get that. Like, that would also be a mess. So you feel alone. So the question is, is being alone good or is being alone bad? Now, think about this for a minute. We've actually mentioned this topic in passing in Rambam and Hilchodeot in different classes this year, right? Um, somebody tell me, is it good or bad to be alone? Prove to me that it's good or it's bad. Somebody, anybody? Didn't we say a Jew is, is never alone? That's true. That doesn't mean the concept of being alone doesn't exist. It means that you determine to some degree 
whether you are alone based on whether you feel Hashem is with you. But the, that wasn't the question. The question is, is being alone good or bad? Right? That is the first time we find um, the opposite of Tov, that it's Loto, something's not good. And we've mentioned before that this appears only twice in the entire Torah. Right? It appears at the creation of woman. Hashem says it's not good for man to be alone. Of course, that raises the question, why did God create us alone? Maybe we needed to experience being alone in order to appreciate the value of not being alone. The second time we find the concept of not being alone is by Moshe Rabbeinu, and Moshe Rabbeinu is sitting in judgment. And Yitro, his father-in-law, comes along and says, It's not good for you to judge alone. And that is the import which causes the creation of a system of judiciary courts over tens, over hundreds, over thousands, and whatever else is going at the beginning of Parshat Yitro. So clearly the Torah is demonstrating that it's not good to be alone. However, as we're going to see in this week's Parsha, there is a challenge to that idea. Yeah, Micah, you have a question? Yeah, um, Sage and I learned uh, Gemara and Psachim. It's at the, at the end of, very end of Psachim, and it says that like Hashem is alone in his world, and Avram Avinu is like alone in our world. And Excellent. Be... Excellent. How do I know that Avram is alone? First of all, Hashem is the definition of alone. Hashem is, right, Levado. Hashem is, you know, the other, the Ein Sof. There is no other but, right? Who Levado who? Hashem is, right? Ein od milvado. It's exactly that word. So you can't say that being alone is not good because Hashem is alone. So you might answer, oh, with Hashem, it's not good. But for human beings, with Hashem, it's the definition of good because whatever is Hashem is good. But with human beings, it's bad. And that could be. Sometimes to mimic God is not a good thing. But then again, Avram would suggest the other words, right? Because Avram is known as the Ivri. Because the entire world, the Ivri, comes from the word Ever, to the side. Avram is on one side of the river, and everybody else is on the other side. So Avram is essentially alone. Now the word alone is not used, so that might give us a little room, but what do we do with that? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it ideal? Is it necessary? What's the nature of being alone? Now why do I bring up this whole question? Because there is, because this is Parshat Balak. And in Parshat Balak, Balak, the king of Moab, the Moabites are clearly very afraid of this mass of humanity that's coming their way, Vayagar Moab. They were afraid of the Jewish people. Balak says that they have covered the land. There, there are this massive multitude, millions of people. They're headed in their direction. Nobody can stand in their way. They, they, they wiped out the empire of, of, of Egypt. The Amalekites fell before them. The seas split. What are we going to do? So Balak says we can't beat them on the battlefield. Let's, let's do something sinister. Let's beat them on the spiritual battlefield. And he convinces Bilam, I know that's a longer discussion, but he convinces Bilam to curse the Jewish people. First of all, just as an aside, it's an interesting question. Well, what do we care if Balak curses us? I mean, we're a blessed people. And, and Hashem has decided that we're the chosen people. So Hashem can bless us or curse us, but why would a non-Jewish prophet have any impact on us? So that's an interesting discussion. If you remind me in the question and answer session afterwards, I'm happy to get back to that question. Or you could shoot me a WhatsApp and I'll send you an old cheer on the topic. But putting that aside, what is the nature of what Bilam actually ends up doing? So there is a Gemara, right? First of all, when, when in, in, in Parshat Chukat, when, when Bilam 
does say this. What does Bilam say? Right? You can see the Jews from the teeps of the mountains. It's an interesting discussion what that means. They are a people that dwells alone. And they will not be counted or thought of amongst the nations. Right? This is in Perak Chav Gimel Pasuk Tet, 23.9. Now, Bilam ostensibly is cursing the Jewish people. So I might say, that's a terrible curse. That we're all alone. Right? But the truth is, we suggest, Chazal suggests, that Bilam's words turn into a blessing. They turn into a bracha. So maybe the fact that we're a people alone, and we survived, and we have an ethical standard that's second to none, and so on and so forth, we have a lone voice of morality, maybe that's a blessing. So it's actually it's interesting that um, Rashi here says, um, can I find this? Um, sorry, the Balaturim says, right, Rav Yaakov Ibn Aturim, Lomar Lecha Shishkon Be'eretz Yisrael, right? Levadad means that the Jewish people will live in their own country. So one might suggest, okay, so that's a blessing. That no matter what happens in the world, one day we will come home, we will have our own land. We are a people that dwell alone. We're not, we will eventually not be subject to the nations of the world. Now, if I'd be giving this shear a hundred years ago, that would have been a dream. We'd have closed our eyes and imagined, and maybe we would offer up a praying prayer, so it should be. But today we see that this prophecy has become a reality, right? And so there are many different discussions about, about what it means, Am Levadad Yishkon. And in fact, Rashi says, it's a schut. It's a merit to dwell alone. Right? Okay. So, there's a Gemara. The Gemara in, um, in Sanhedrin. And there's actually a whole Amur here. There's a whole half a page that discusses the story of Bilam and the curses of Bilam. And if you want to learn something interesting for this week's Parsha, um, it's, it's on Kufay uh, Amud Beis, 105b. Right? And there's a whole discussion about how the curse of Bilam would work and is there a an instance where Hashem Hashem is, is, is experiencing or angry or can you tap into that? And that's a whole Kabbalistic discussion beyond the purview of this year and maybe beyond my pay grade. But uh, but there's an interesting discussion here in the Gemara. And the Gemara says as follows From the blessing, right? Because his words wanted to curse, but he was forced to bless, of that wicked one, Bilam. You learn what what was really in his heart. He really wanted to say that they should no longer have the ability to have synagogues, have batimendrash, have study halls, because that's their secret strength. If they can't gather together, if they can't learn Torah, if they can't daven, then they'll have no strength. Right? And that's why he says, Matovu Alecha Yaakov. And the Gemara goes on, Amr Rabbi Abba Barkana, Kulam Chazru Leklala. All of the blessings that Bilam was forced to say ended up being curses, except Chutzmi Bate Knesset Bate Midrasha. And it goes on to explain why. Now, it's everything that Bilam said ultimately would also be a curse. Even though at the time it was a blessing, because the Jewish people needed to feel blessed, but ultimately it would be a curse. So putting aside for the moment how that worked and why that worked, what that means, according to the Gemara, is that Am Levadad Yishkon would ultimately be a curse. It would be something negative. So it leaves us with this question, right? If everything becomes a curse except for Matovu, and that's why we 
that's one of the reasons we say the matovu, how goodly are your tents, O Yaakov, and so on, when we, when we enter Shul, right? So, so, so that raises an interesting question. By the way, where do I see, right, that being uh, uh, levad is a curse? All over the place, right? I'll give you an example. If you look in Vayikra, what happens to the Mitzorah? What happens to the person who is diagnosed by a Kohen as having Tzarat, as being a leper? So the Pasuk says, this is in Tazria, it's in Perak Yud Gimel, Pasuk Memvav, uh, 1346. He remains Tame as long as the Nega, the affliction, is with him. And he has to sit alone outside the camp. Right? He's forced to leave his home. He has to leave the encampment. This is not a blessing. And Rashi, by the way, says very clearly, why does he sit alone? Even somebody else was tame, somebody else was impure, let's say somebody, I don't know, came into contact with a dead body, so he has to leave the machane, he has to sort of not be in proximity to people until he completes the process of becoming pure. But he can't sit with the Mitzorah. So Amru Rebotainu and Chazal say, Why is he different from another tame? The other Tamei is Tamei, but he's allowed to stay at home. He's allowed, why does this one have to leave? Right? Because the general understanding is that the affliction of Mitzorah, whatever it is, comes as a result of Lashon Hara. It immediately follows stories of Lashon Hara. We see that, that Moshe gets a form of Tzarat, of, of, of affliction. It's translated as leprosy, but we know it's not really leprosy. When he speaks ill of the Jewish people, Miriam gets tzarat, a form of leprosy, or it's called leprosy. When she speaks ill, she speaks Lashonara about, uh, about slanders Moshe. And therefore, it's associated with Lashonara. So therefore, sitting alone is a consequence. It's a negative consequence, so it's obviously bad. And the best example I could think of, we're going to read in a few weeks. How does uh, the, the book of Eicha begin? Eicha yashva badad ha'irabatiam. How doth she sit alone, the city that was once so full of people? It's, it's a curse to be alone, right? It's not good to be alone. So is it a blessing or is it a curse? On the other hand, here, we generally understand that what Bilam comes to say, that Bilam's curses are forced into blessings. Hashem decides, you can speak, but I will put the words in your mouth. It's a prophecy. And all of the other things seem to be a blessing, like Matovu, so Am Levadad Yishkon, people that dwells alone, that should be a blessing. And by the way, if you think about it, the fact that we're, we sat alone is one of the reasons that we're still here. So is it good or is it bad? Is it a form of blessing or is it a curse? Right? Um, so... Wait, Rebe? Yeah? I have a question. I guess it's, it's a little bit of tangential, but Story how then, if the Matorah has... If the Mitzvah has to be completely alone, how then were there like the group of like um, people, like the group of people of Saras that like saw the army of Samacherev? Oh, that, that, it's like, not at all killed, clear. Like, That's a good question. It's not at all clear that when the Mitzvahim were outside the city gates, that that was during the Shiva Yamim of Tzarat. Um There's a big discussion about that. First of all, was that Halachic Tzarat? Or we also know that there was an affliction of leprosy. And there are some who suggest that in the time of the Nevi'im, they also referred that to Tzarat. That's why it gets confused. So therefore, you might have people who were outside the camp because people didn't want to be afflicted by them. 
right? That's one possibility. And the other possibility is, they have to be alone. So they separate, you know, we're, we're alone and you're going to find out when you come back, Shanabet, that we're going to have to set you up into pods and, and, you know, different things, you know, different ways to keep people together and yet to keep you apart. So there are different possibilities there, right? Uh, how does the Kohen come up to the uh, Mitzorah? So there's some, you know, there's a whole discussion. If you're Dalai Lama away, is he still alone? And so on and so forth. But it's a good question. Um, okay? So, so there is a, a, a fascinating Nitziv. Right? It's interesting, by the way, that the story of Avraham, Avraham is told, Lech lecha right? You have to leave your environment and you have to go to a place that you don't know. Now, what happens to a person when he leaves his neighborhood and he goes somewhere new? He starts out by being alone. He's alone. Now, it's interesting. We don't really think about this. Why does Hashem do that? I mean, I would think that if, if you want to change the world, be in the world. I mean, Mesopotamia was the cradle of civilization. Do you want to influence society? I would think, especially... If you buy into the Medrash, and I'm not talking about whether this is literal or allegorical, that's an interesting discussion, but even if you assume it's an allegory, Avram is, somehow has this miraculous experience. He's inside a furnace, he doesn't get burned, he comes out, he's a superhero. So I would think he should dafka, stay in Mesopotamia and start spreading the word. And we know that he does this for a while, because when he leaves, he takes with him Lod, Sarai, and Kolan Nefesh, Asher Asabacharan, Asubacharan. They take with them all the souls that they made. In other words, people that they influenced, maybe that they educated. So it's interesting that Hashem tells Avram, you have to leave and be alone. More interesting, by the way, is that this story, this beginning of Avram, immediately follows the story of Migdal Bavel. Migdal Bavel, the Tower of Bavel, is at the end of Parshat Noach. Okay? And there is a fascinating nitziv on the story of the Tower of Bavel, okay? How does the story of the Tower of Bavel, we all know the story, right? All these people leave the site of the Ark, which may or may not be somewhere in the mountains of Ararat, and they head east. And when they head east, they find a valley. And in the valley, they settle, and they want to make a city and a tower, they want to make for themselves a name, and it's an interesting question what happens there. Hashem doesn't like what they're doing, so he scatters them and separates them. But how does the story begin? The story begins, The entire world was one language. And people spoke the same. It was one people. There were no other. You know, I don't know if you, you uh, sort of you might be too young to remember John Lennon's song, Imagine. Have you ever heard his song, Imagine? It talks about, I obviously categorically, fundamentally disagree with some of the tenets of that song. Imagine there's no heaven, no religion too. But it does say, imagine if we didn't have all these separate nations and we didn't have different languages. We were all one. It sounds like a big nirvana. It's great. So Hashem obviously doesn't like that. Like I would think that they start off great. But instead, this oneness is destroyed by no other than a Kodesh Baruch Hu. Hashem decides this is not a good idea. So listen to this Nitziv. This is an unbelievable Nitziv. Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin was the Rosh Yeshiva of Halajan. He was a man of great principle. Um, and he says the following. Safachat. Why does the Torah mention that they all had one language? Zegaram lechetechad. That was what caused the first mistake. 
It was a mistake that they all wanted to dwell in one place. Why? Uh, uh, sorry. Um, sorry. Sitting in one place, all of us together, is not what Hashem willed. You're supposed to be fruitful, multiplying, fill the whole world. Hashem created the whole world for us to settle in it. Hashem created the world that we should dwell therein. And if we all want to dwell in one place, we're not fulfilling Hashem's will, that we dwell all over the world. Okay, that's an interesting question. In other words, if there are different places to see, we should go settle there. That's a very difficult discussion. But he says that in order to say the following. What is Udvari Machadim? Right? Um, either uniform words or things that are one. So... The Nitziv says, Lo the, the Nitziv says, the Torah doesn't tell us exactly what we're referring to. It's only alluded to. Right? HaKadosh Baruch Hu's wrath was not aroused because of the content of what they said. But rather because the words were singular. There was only one opinion. Whatever the content was, you would think there's no mistake here. This would destroy society. Because when everybody's saying the same thing, there is no dissent. There's no room for dialogue, right? The ideas have to be uniform. Think about it, right? You think about an entire population sort of doing exactly the same thing. So you can think about everybody putting aside their differences on Yom HaZikaron on Memorial Day, standing in Har Herzl and being in the same moment. Or you can think about people in Nuremberg by the tens of thousands with their arms outstretched, declaring fealty in, in a cult-like fashion to Adolf Hitler. The foundation of dictatorship is that there's my way or the highway. There's only one way to go, and everybody has to follow that. Now think about this. This is an interesting uh, tension. On the one hand, Judaism seems to value diversity. We value diversity of opinion. We certainly value diversity when it comes to populations. Right? There's no halachic uh, implication at all as to whether a person's skin is black or yellow or red or white. The contention that Judaism racist is racist is absurd. Right? It doesn't matter. And, and despite sort of inferences to the opposite... You know, if you're halachically speaking, I'm not talking about whether people took on certain customs, which in my opinion were mistaken, but they're not based on halacha. If my daughter comes home with a guy, it is irrelevant whether he's black, white, red, right? The content of his words and of his actions, that's a different story, right? My daughter once uh, asked me, you know, she was just, we were having a Shabbos table discussion, and she said, Abba, what would you think if I brought home an Ethiopian boy? And I was a little puzzled at first by the question. Then I realized why she was asking the question. So I said, look, the fact that he's Ethiopian wouldn't concern me. I would just say to you before you get serious with him, you have to meet his family. Because they come from a very different culture. And you have to know what you're in for. I don't think that's different from my girl, from my daughter meeting an American. Or meeting a Russian. Or, or anything else. Right? It's not about better than or worse than. So diversity is a valuable thing. The Gemara is all shaklavataria. We're meant to argue with each other. We're meant to debate. Truth comes from the value of seeing different opinions 
and appreciating what different opinions bring to the table, right? So on a certain level, there is a tremendous danger of university. In fact, Rabbi Sachs, in a number of his books, talks about Judaism's dignity of dissent, sort of the, the, the value of being able to offer a dissenting opinion, right? We, we argue, we, we challenge, we question, right? We even question the Baruch Hu, right? Avram, at the very beginning of his journey, debates God, right? Hashem wants to destroy Stom, and Avram starts to argue with him. Now, Avram starts, and he says, Anuchia farva efer, I'm nothing. You got to recognize, by the way, I once saw a fantastic word from Rechaim Shmuel Evitz. Says if you want to know the most important pasuk in the Torah for a good marriage, you know what it is? Anochia farva efer. If you recognize when you get married, you got to sometimes be willing to be the ash, then you'll have a fantastic marriage, which is true, right? It's not about me, etc., etc. Right? We, the fact that we're alone, the fact that we're other, allows us to have a perspective that challenges the world, which is good. Am levadad yishkon means that we have to step aside, we have to be apart from the consensus. And the best example I can think of this is the Rambam. The Rambam in Hilcho Deot, you may remember, um, in Perek Vav, um, starts Perek Vav, Perek Vav, as you know, is my favorite Perek in, in Hilcho Deot. He says, Derech b'riyatosh l'adam liot nimshach b'deotav v'maasav achareyav v'chaverav. It is natural for a person to be drawn to the behaviors and the actions of those that are around him. So the Rambam goes on to say, you have to be very careful about the environment you allow yourself to be in. What happens if you find yourself in an unhealthy environment? You know, whether it's uh, sort of the goings-on at a college campus, or what happens to be going on with the particular friends that you have, or living in a country which essentially is unethical. Imagine for the moment that you're living in South Africa 25 years ago and you're living in a small place and, and, and it just happens to be, it's an affluent place, but there's no healthy, moderate Jewish community there and you don't care because, you know, maybe you're not even religious or whatever it might be, but it's an apartheid state and everybody there believes in the value of apartheid. I don't know, you're living far out of the cities. You're living in an unethical environment. It's almost impossible to imagine that if you live in that environment, that it will not affect you. You are left with two choices. You can either stay and allow yourself to be affected. By the way, even when you stay for the right reasons and you're trying to do good, you need to know that you will be impacted. Right? The Balshemtov has a famous line, if you want to clean up the mud, be prepared to get dirty. Right? If you uh, choose to, to pursue a path in education, especially sort of, you know, I mean, you know my opinion on the word Kiruv and outreach, but for the for the purpose of brevity, we'll use those terms. You're, you're, you're reaching out to people who are far away from Judaism and you want to share with them the beauty of Judaism. You will be in an environment that will impact you. And the only reason that, the only thing that allows you to do it is your firm belief and your ability to measure that the impact you're having on them is greater than the impact they're having on you. I used to experience this every time I went to reserve duty. You go to reserve duty and you, you know, some of them were really quality guys and some of them were not. Now, I'm not judging the totality of the person, but certainly the actions. If you sit with people and they're telling dirty jokes all day for 30 days, you are going to come home with the stench clinging to you. And I used to feel when I got home from Milwaukee sometimes, I had to sort of go to an extreme for a few days just to get back to the middle where I wanted to be. You know, I would do, I would usually take a day after Milwaukee and try to do a lot of learning just to kind of get myself back into a healthy space. It was very difficult. All sorts of things that would go on in Milwaukee, right? 
it's even scarier when you go to the regular army. I mean, I have a strong opinion about sort of the value and the beauty of the mitzvah, of Nochemet mitzvah, of joining the army. Make no mistake about it, a person who goes into the army for a long time will be impacted, and not always positively, by the army. That's the value of a Hezder program, where you're in the army and you sort of bring a part of your environment with you. Right? So therefore, Am Levadad Yishkon speaks to the ability to impact as a nation. And the last thing, which is worth considering, is the Pasuk says, Am Levadad Yishkon. In other words, we are meant... And there is a value to us being separate as a nation. That does not mean there's a value to us being separate and alone as individuals. We need to be together as a people and apart as a nation. And that may be sort of part of the way of understanding this, right? And there are a lot of values to the fact that even Ezra says that Amavadajishkan means that we don't assimilate. We were the, the pariah of peoples. There were many uh, there are many reasons why the Jews basically never assimilated through hundreds of years because who nobody would accept us, and we were persecuted, right? Um, you know, Rashi says that the Jews, because they're a part, are indestructible. The Ramban says that we maintained our integrity, but ultimately, we are able to be a model because we're viewed as separate, we're seen apart, and therefore Amvadad Yishkan. Um, you know, it enables us to do that. And I'll just finish by saying, and this is really Rabbi Sachs, um, you know, being a nation apart involves, involves a number of different principles. First of all, it speaks to the value of maintaining your individual integrity. Right? The fact that the Jewish people now can be in Israel means that we have the ability to, to, to reestablish our identity as a people. Right? It, 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 it allows us to survive but it doesn't mitigate the value of respecting the others. You know, the fact that we're chosen doesn't mean we're better than anybody else. It just means we have responsibility. And that, by the way, is the fundamental truth of any healthy relationship. To respect the other on the one hand and the value of otherness, and yet to value the whole at the same time. You know, when you get married, one of the mistakes sometimes the couples make when they get married is, is they absolve their individual identities. There's no time for you to be alone. There's no time for you to be another. That's also not healthy. Finding that balance is what this Pesach is all about. So that's a, a little bit of food for thought on the topic of the power of being alone. Um, I think during this particular period of Corona, sort of becoming aware of just how, how difficult, challenging, and yet productive being other and alone can be speaks volumes to what this Pesach is about. So wishing everybody a Shabbat Shalom and Parashat Balak.